0: You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 26th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the briefing coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up, the head of the United Nations, Antoni Guterres, warns of a catastrophe in Tigray if fighting in the restless region continues.
1: The situation in Ethiopia is spiraling out of
0: control. Violence and destruction have reached alarming levels. We will ask the UN's former humanitarian chief, Sir Mark Lowcock, whether peace talks in South Africa can bring an end to the two-year war. Also ahead, Julia Gellert from the Migration Policy Institute will be telling us about the Biden administration's carrot and stick approach to immigration. Plus, the latest business headlines and Monocle's technology correspondent, David Phelan, will also tell us about the latest gadgets on the market. All that Right here on the briefing with me, Markus Hippi. Peace talks aimed at ending fighting in the Tigray region of northern Ethiopia have begun in South Africa. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, has called for an immediate end to the two-year conflict, which has claimed the lives of tens of thousands of people and displaced millions. Let's get the latest now with Sir Mark Lowcock, who served as the UN's humanitarian chief between 2017 and 2021. Mark is now a visiting professor at the London School of Economics. Good afternoon and welcome to The Briefing. Mark, could you start by outlining the scale of this conflict first? Well, this war has been going on with pauses
2: now since late 2020. Right now, as you and I talk, it's, I think, the bloodiest, most deadly conflict anywhere on the planet, even including Ukraine. The loss of life in a total bloodbath over recent weeks when The Eritrean government have thrown waves of young men at the Tigrayan defences. The Ethiopian government have tried to do the same. The loss of life on both sides has been absolutely horrific. So it is a good thing that there are at least some attempts to bring this horrific, intolerable carnage to an end through the peace talks in
0: South Africa. What exactly is driving this violence?
2: Well, the origin goes back a long way. The Eritrean authorities under the... Diktat of actually one of the world's most brutal long standing dictators, Isaiah Afwerki, have long held grudges against uh, Ethiopia and especially against the Tigrayan population of Ethiopia. When Prime Minister Meles Zenawi, who was from Tigray, was um, in charge of Ethiopia going back uh, to start with nearly 30 years ago, there was a, a period when there was an active war between Eritrea and um, Ethiopia on the Tigray border. And that was basically because they'd fallen out and the grudges created by that war, which was about 20 years ago brought to an end, have never gone away. And so that's one big element in the jigsaw puzzle. Another is that when Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed took office, he tried to exert a lot of control over the region of Tigray. Ethiopia is a federal country, so regions are supposed to have autonomy. And Discussions between the two sides got out of control and fear grew and both sides took up arms. So that was what was happening during the course of 2019. And and Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed made the terrible blunder of resorting to force to try to have his way and engaging uh, the Eritreans on his
0: side, and um, things have spiraled totally out of control from that point. Absolutely. And the UN Secretary General, antony Guterres, for example, has said that violence there has reached alarming levels. How important do you think that these talks are taking place now?
2: I think it's very important. And credit is due to the African Union under their leader, the chair of the African Union, uh, Mr. Faki, um, the Secretary-General of the UN has been pushing for this as well. The Americans have been pushing the sides to get together. I think they've helped get the Tigrayan side to the talks. The talks have one big problem, which is the biggest kind of um, voice creating most of the trouble, who are the Eritreans under Isaiah Safarwerki are not, to my understanding, actually in the room. So it's good that the Ethiopian government is talking to the Tigrayan side, but it is a problem that that evil malevolent force from the outside who are causing a lot of the problems, the Eritreans, um, are not being forced to the table as well. And something needs to be done to bring more pressure to bear on them. What do you think that kind of pressure
0: could be? Where could it come from?
2: Well, it's very difficult to see, um, actually. Um, they're not particularly susceptible to Western pressure. They are reliant on a number of other countries, some in the Middle East. Uh, they buy arms, for example, from Turkey and elsewhere. They have long-standing relations with, for example, Russia and China. So there are countries um, who ought to be able to bring a degree of pressure to bear. And I think that... Given most of those countries also have a a stake in Ethiopia, China in particular is a huge lender to Ethiopia, and Ethiopia's ability to service its debts to China will be called into question if this situation continues as it's been going long into the future. So those countries ought to ask themselves what their wider interest is in bringing this uh, to a more peaceful situation, because there's a serious danger that what's going on now in Tigray could be a step on the way to the total fragmentation of Ethiopia, which would be hugely damaging, not just for Ethiopia, but for the region and for the wider world too. And that's really not in the interest of countries like China. So they have an interest in putting their shoulder to the wheel a bit more to help with this problem.
0: What do you think different sides want in these talks, for example, and more widely? What does Tigray People's Liberation Front want, for example? And even Eritrea, what does that nation want?
2: I think what the Tigrayans want is not to be subject to a huge what they in their terms they believe they're being subject to a huge attempted at genocide and they for them this is a, a, an existential struggle they genuinely believe and you know i understand why they believe this that there's an attempt going on to exterminate them so so that's where they're coming from they want to be able to live in peace and safety and they want access to humanitarian aid which has been blocked effectively mm-hmm. For months now, they want health services. They want what people want everywhere around the world. Actually, I think the on the Eritrean side, it's an ability to deal. You know, to get what they've wanted. And um, through a long-standing grudge, they have always worried that maybe because of things they've done in the past, the um, the at some point could rise again and then be a threat to Eritrea. So I'm afraid that they they want to um, do everything they can to essentially destroy the Tigrayans' ability ever to pose a threat to them in future. The Ethiopian government, I think, um, originally wanted to have more control from the centre on the outlying regions. I think that their view has evolved a bit and they recognise that they're living in a federal system. Ethiopia is one country, but comprised of many, many nations, huge numbers of different ethnic groups. There are many other conflicts around the country. I think if they're smart, what they want is to um, calm things down across the whole country and build a new policy, a new way of working across the country, which gets a better balance between central control and local devolution.
0: Looking at this latest round of talks, are you optimistic at all that some kind of a deal could be reached? At least this effort seems to be the most serious so far.
2: It is the most serious so far. It's good that it's happening. Whether it works or not will depend on the pressure that can be brought to bear, I think, on the Eritreans. I think that's the key issue now.
0: That was Sir Mark Lowcock. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, here is Monocle 24 Sophie Monal Coombs with the day's other news headlines.
3: Thanks, Marcus. Ukraine's government has said refugees should not return to the country until winter ends, following a fresh wave of Russian attacks. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky added that recent Russian airstrikes have destroyed around a third of the country's energy facilities. The United States, Japan and South Korea have warned of an unparalleled response should North Korea conduct a seventh nuclear bomb test. Washington and its allies believe that Pyongyang could be about to resume nuclear bomb testing for the first time in five years. The UK's new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, has been holding talks with his cabinet in a bid to address the country's economic crisis. SUNAC's predecessor, Liz Truss, resigned after just seven weeks in office and the opposition Labour Party has renewed calls for a general election. And NASA scientists say they have identified dozens of places around the world that are emitting vast amounts of methane. The US agency's groundbreaking technology is designed to detect methane hotspots from space and it could be used to help fight climate change. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus.
0: Thank you very much, Sophie. Over this past weekend, a group of Venezuelans arrived in the United States as part of a new humanitarian assistance program that could allow as many as 24,000 Venezuelans to fly directly to the U.S. legally if they can obtain sponsors. It comes as the Biden administration simultaneously closed its border with Mexico to crossings by Venezuelans. Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Jermak has been talking about the new carrot-and-stick approach to immigration with Julia Gellert. She's a senior policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. Julia began by explaining how the new program for Venezuela works.
4: This new plan for Venezuelans was made in the face of very high numbers of Venezuelans approaching the U.S.-Mexico border, three times this many compared to last year. What the plan is, is that Venezuelans will now be subjected to Title 42 at the border. What that means is that Venezuelans who approach the United States at the U.S.-Mexico border will be turned around to Mexico. At the same time, there's a new parole program creating a pathway to the United States for 24,000 Venezuelans they would have to fly to the US they need to have a valid passport they have to have a supporter in the United States who pledges to support them here they need to go through screening and they need to have not entered either Panama or Mexico illegally since the program was launched last week this is an important new legal pathway for Venezuelans people are are coming to the US Mexico border and trying their luck because they don't have a way to get a visa and come legally to the United States so this is a other small program in the face of how many Venezuelans have been coming to the border. But for those who are able to take part, it's a really important pathway to be able to come to the United States.
5: How much of an impact will this really have at the border, do you think? Also on illegal immigration into the United States, which is, of course, such a big issue also ahead of the midterm elections. Is a program like this helpful, even though it's really just a drop in the bucket compared to the number of people coming to the U.S. from a country like Venezuela every month.
4: So the number 24,000 slots for Venezuelan parolees is quite small. In recent months, we've seen 24,000 or more Venezuelans coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. That said, it's important to have some kind of legal pathway for people to come. I think what could have a bigger impact is the application of Title 42 to Venezuelans at the border. So we know why Venezuelans were leaving Venezuela. They were facing political persecution and extreme poverty in Venezuela. And many who had been living in other countries in South America were also facing severe economic challenges. But another factor in people's migration decisions was the fact that Venezuelans were being allowed into the United States. They were not being sent back to Mexico. Once Venezuelans made it into the U.S., The U.S. wasn't returning anyone to Venezuela. So that message had clearly gotten back to people in South America that if you make it to the U.S.-Mexico border, you'll be allowed in. And once you're allowed in, you'll be able to stay. You know, what legal status you'll have in the United States was less clear, but people were seeking safety and economic opportunity. So now that the door is largely closed to Venezuelans at the border, I think that will influence people's migration decisions. Many may still try to come and they just keep trying their luck at the border until they make it in. But it may have an impact on people's decision to leave and, and when they leave.
5: Now, there are similar programs in place already for Ukrainians and Afghanistan to come over to the United States. Those two programs were implemented after a major crisis in those countries. But talk to me about how those programs compared to this one? What is different about what Venezuelans are getting compared to, say, Ukraine?
4: I think the Uniting for Ukraine program is important comparison. The parole program for Venezuelans was modeled on the parole program created for Ukrainians. The application process is the same, the sponsorship process is the same. It is set up to be an online efficient process in the same way. However, there are some important differences. Uniting for Ukraine didn't have a numerical cap. We've already seen over 60,000 Ukrainians come to the US, over 100,000 sponsors are approved, and we expect large numbers to continue to come through that program. So the lack of a cap is a big difference. Ukrainians also, because of an act of Congress, were made eligible for refugee resettlement assistance. So that gave them access to certain public benefits, including access to food assistance, public health insurance, cash assistance. And there hasn't been any talk of making Venezuelans eligible for those supports. So that's going to be another big difference. And Ukrainians were not subjected to the same enforcement regime at the border. There were a lot of Ukrainians who came to the U.S.-Mexico border and were paroled in. With this new Venezuelan program, if someone crosses illegally into Mexico, they won't be eligible for the parole program for Venezuelans. So there are several key differences there.
5: And what about the other side of this, the the sponsorship? I mean, in both cases, Ukraine and Venezuela, you need a sponsor, also a financial sponsor here in the United States. We've seen an outpouring of support for Ukraine over the past year, of course, but what kind of preparedness is there for a country like Venezuela?
4: That really was an open question how many people would step forward to sponsor Venezuelans. But already in the first week, we've seen over 7,500 applications submitted for humanitarian parole for Venezuelans, and they've already started to be approved. And actually, the first few Venezuelans arrived over the weekend. So that does suggest that there will be a strong interest in this program and and a lot of applications and then we'll have to see whether those sponsors can prove the economic resources required to sponsor someone to come.
5: And just finally, the Ukraine program and support was of course unique in the US and around the world for that matter. Given that, I wonder if you think that this program for Venezuela is maybe a closer approximation to something that could work for many other countries. Do you expect something similar in that sense to be rolled out for Latin American nations to help ease some of the strain at the U.S. border and confront illegal immigration at the same time going forward?
4: I think that this really is a test case in a way, and I agree that it's different than the Ukrainian program because, you know, this has been an ongoing crisis in Venezuela. It's not as if something just recently changed and i do think that people are watching to see how this works out if you know this combination of title 42 and also a parole program succeeds in diverting people from irregular migration to more regular channels that could be applied to other countries i wonder if there's a a limit to how much congress and those who are skeptical about the value of immigration will tolerate the creation of more and more parole programs its an exercise of executive authority that could hit kind of a political limit. But I do think there's hunger for creating legal pathways and strong enforcement as a way to divert people away from the border and through legal channels. Ultimately, Congress has the power to create more legal pathways and also change immigration in, in broader ways to push people towards legal pathways.
0: That was Monocle's Chris Jermak in conversation with Julia Gellert from the Migration Policy Institute. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It is 20.20 in Seoul, 12.20 here in London and 7.20 a.m. in Washington, D.C. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle24. We continue now with a technology roundup with Monocle's tech expert, David Field. And David, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. So you brought quite a few gadgets today with you. Shall we start with what is probably the big release of this week from Apple?
6: Yes, uh, Apple uh, announced um, uh, last week by press release they announced two new pr- um, products um, in the iPad range and a new Apple TV uh, streaming box um, they didn't have an event for it uh, but it, it's quite interesting the, the the iPad pro is is great, but um, it, it's a kind of iterative upgrade but the base level iPad has had a huge upgrade this is it it now comes in more colours it suddenly doesn't have the touch ID button on the front uh, it, that's mounted in the um, power button on the side uh, so it means that it's an all screen device 10.9 inches instead of 10.2 inches in a similarly sized um, uh, gadget uh, and it's suddenly although it's gone up a bit in price it's £499 449 dollars. Uh, it's still a lot cheaper than the iPad Air but in almost every as good as it.
0: Do you think people will buy iPad Air, considering that what I'm holding at the moment is not that heavy either. No, that's right. Uh, It's almost exactly the same
6: dimensions as the iPad Air. It's a few grams lighter, um, but there's very little in it. The processor is much faster on the iPad Air. It's the M1 instead of the A14 Bionic, sorry, on that. Um, But for most people, for most of the time, you really won't be able to tell the difference in in speed and performance.
0: How much can you tell us about the importance of iPad for for Apple? There was a lot of experience back in the day, I think it was 2010, when the first iPad came out. And that was meant to be the future of so many things. And mobile phones have been getting better, faster, more efficient with big screens. Do people actually really want to Get these as much still.
6: I think there's a very good question. I think it's why companies like Samsung have invested in foldable phones because you can have uh, a phone that is uh, that folds out to be a tablet, and that's kind of enough for a lot of people. But that brings compromises. You you, you the, the the opened out screen ends up being square. It's a, when it's folded, it's a chunky device in your pocket. Uh, so the iPad is still very popular, and it's, they've got more now than ever. The ninth generation and the tenth generation iPad, the iPad mini, the iPad Air, and two sizes of iPad Pro.
0: Well, what are your thoughts about this new iPad? Do you enjoy using it?
6: Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, I think, you know, if you really want the real performance or the bigger screen, then the iPad Pro is is, is exceptional. Uh, but I do worry for the iPad Air because I think they'll have to do something very different from with that uh, to, to make it special. But it's very nice to
0: see the, the entry-level iPad uh, be updated to its new design. Well, we're going to be looking at some other gadgets you've brought with you shortly. But shall we talk about what was going on? yesterday uh, last week even at the adobe max conference you were there
6: yes uh, adobe has a big uh, conference for creatives uh, each year called adobe max they haven't held it in person since 2019 but it's really interesting because everything they announced obviously ob- obviously is software uh, photoshop being um, the tent pole of their many many uh, software uh, things and It's extraordinary how granular the detail is and how remarkably strong the reaction from the creatives and the audience is. They had a new thing called Intertwine tool, Mm -hmm. which just means that if you've got, say, an image of a rope going through lettering, that took a lot of work to make that happen before. Now you just click a few clicks and it's done. I can't tell you the gasps of excitement in the auditorium when when this happened. And and they even have a thing called Adobe Sneaks when they reveal tiny, tiny little... Uh, new features, and depending on the audience reaction, some of these may go on to be in uh, Adobe products uh, in the future. But it's 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 a different conference from a lot of the other ones, just because the creatives there are so um, engaged uh, and so delighted by everything that comes
0: up. Now, something I was meant to ask from you, I got I got an idea. I I, I heard what had been going on at this event. This. Bro-checked all of me, which is something that lets you uncrop a photo. Can you explain to us how that actually works? Yes. Well,
6: not really, no. I mean, I can tell you what <laughs> what happens. It is uh, it is remarkable. Uh, it, 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 it was demonstrated by one of the engineers. There are many at Adobe who are just there to create sneaks. And it, it was a picture of a girl... Um, and it would only went down to just above her knees there was nothing else and by the use of artificial intelligence which they are very big on at Adobe it was able to create a full picture with her legs change the background remove her handbag change her clothing with four or five different options instantly available. Were there shoe options as well? There were shoe options, yes Uh, and uh, colours for shoes uh, (laughs) could be changed uh, uh, with one click as well. So it was a very, very impressive uh, demonstration. I'm sure that will make itself uh, known in final software one day.
0: That sounds amazing. Shall we talk about the, the remaining gadgets you have for us today? What did you bring with you?
6: Well, Therabody is a company, it began as Theragun, uh, and uh, it was the percussive um, uh, treatment to, to, to help you recover from uh, overexertions at the gym. Uh, and they also came up with a, a smaller version called the Mini. Uh, Therabody now has a series of new things, including a new Therabody Mini, which is a tiny little tri- triangular thing. And if you press and hold that blue button, you will see that it's much quieter. Than it was before. Now that mm-hmm. I can tell you is a fraction of the noise. <laughs> but you may press it to a muscle if you wish, and you will see that it is very powerful and very um, good at recuperative uh, <laughs> effects. So that, that, amazing. That's an update to an existing thing. But then I'm now going to pass you this remarkable pair of green, uh, blue, and grey goggles. Okay, what are they meant to do? Well, they. Uh, uh, I, I'm it, trying to wear them at the same time. Yes, yeah, so um, so you might find it slightly. Confusing, but they—they have—they—they have, they, they have um, <laughs> a, um, a massage effect. I can't tell you, dear listeners, what the, the studio is looking like now. Um, th- they have a massage effect, and the idea is that by the clever use of uh, percussive techniques, it mm-hmm. can lower your blood pressure and indeed well, by lowering your heart rate uh, and uh, it, it encourages you to get to sleep. Um, have you tried this I, I yourself? I have tried it. it is, well, you've just felt it. It is quite a heavy thing to wear on your face, but you do eventually get used to it. It's very popular. Uh, they've given it to um, Premier League football stars who get home from a match and are very, very wired but need to be uh, able to get Go to sleep so they can uh, rest in time for tomorrow's um uh, a practice, and uh, they they have been going crazy about this, saying this really helps me to just calm down. Wellness, as, as you have said, wellness is a big growth area in tech, but never more intimate than this. Uh, no, that that's right. To wear it in bed is is very strange, and and they've now got a, 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 a an arrangement with aura ring, the excellent term, uh, wellness ring, so that it's all kind of getting more and more integrated.
5: Thank
0: you very much for this tech update. Today, David Phelan, you are with The Briefing. And finally, on today's programme, we are getting the latest business news with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Yuan, hello to you. Europe's energy crisis has taken something of a surprise turn. Tell us more. Hello Marcus, I haven't got any gadgets for you but I have got some rather good news
1: now Europe has a nice problem it suddenly has more gas than it can use now starved of those Russian imports we've been discussing this of course uh, for the last few months Europe has been rushing to import liquefied natural gas on tankers from around the world now that has been very successful uh, a moment those ships are still arriving Europe's uh, Northwest Europe is on track to receive 82 tankers of LNG this month alone, that is up by about a fifth on the September figure. Now the other thing which is combining to keep gas prices down is the mild weather. As you may have noticed it is pretty warm at this time of October. Uh, Paris, uh, last time I checked, was forecast to be 25 degrees this week. London is not far off 20. So that means that right across the continent people are not switching on their heating so demand uh, for gas is much lower than it would be usual for this time of year. And the supply is doing pretty well as well. Uh, Europe's uh, storage, uh, well that is 94% full across the european union germany at 98 so that gas storage is ready for winter and we're not using any in october uh, as we normally would, so that is uh, pretty uh, good news. Uh, interesting, uh, Bloomberg model, uh, Bloomberg weather model suggests that the weather is set to stay uh, milder than usual well into November as well. So all of that means that the gas price has really come off its highs. Uh, back in the middle of August, when this was at its worst, the uh, European natural gas price was above 300 euros a megawatt hour. We are now down to around about 100. Uh, euros per megawatt hour so we're at a third of the level at its worst back in august although this is still uh, slightly more expensive than we would expect normally for this
0: time of year well staying with the energy theme hydropower is looking more challenging isn't it
1: yeah globally hydropower generates more electricity than nuclear and more power this is fascinating i think more power than wind and solar combined and in some countries like norway and brazil dams generate more than half of total electricity. The good thing about hydropower is it's also more reliable. It can produce power about 40% of the time, that compares to about a quarter of the time for wind and just 12% of the time for solar, uh, less if you're in Manchester. Now this is all well and good except when there is no water and that has been a big big problem for the world this year. In the US west coast uh, there's been the worst drought in 1,200 years. Reservoirs can normally have only been able to churn out about a half of the power that they normally supply to California. In Europe, of course, we had that very hot dry summer and dried up rivers reduced September's hydro generation to its lowest level since at least 2015. And in Brazil, they had a very nasty drought and that meant uh, that uh, the country was close to rationing electricity. They had to buy uh, lots of power from their neighbours. And the picture, similar in China, Unsurprisingly, China's the country which has built up uh, more dams and more hydro power than anywhere else in the world. And they have seen their worst drought in at least 60 years. Uh, so that has really cut hydro generation in China. So a really fascinating story. Uh, and this is uh, the subject of today's Bloomberg Big Take. Uh, and you can get more on the Big Take if you just uh, Google that or go to your Bloomberg terminal.
0: Great. Bloomberg's Yuan Potts. Thank you very much for this update. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys. Recently- James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. That's at 1400 in Addis Ababa, midday in London, 7am in Washington DC. I am Marcus Hippim. Goodbye and thanks for listening.